Peace be with you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dodds, and <laughs> welcome to Sojourn. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, like Pablo said this week, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And John's Gospel is masterfully organized according to a number of different themes that are all structured into the text simultaneously. And so one of the things that we've been looking at um, are the series of miracles performed by Jesus, which the Gospel of John calls signs. And John is showing us that while these signs were most certainly miracles, they symbolized something much larger. They were doing something much greater. And they were meant to teach us something. They were performed so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so last week in John 4, we saw a royal official intervene on behalf of his son, whom Jesus then brought back from the point of death. And as Drew said, that sign was a parallel of the account in Numbers 14, where Moses intervened on behalf of Israel, who was also a son, and brought him back from the point of death. But following Numbers 14, even though the people of Israel were saved from death, instead of entering the land that God had offered them, where they could rest and be fruitful, they wandered as a people in the wilderness for another 38 years. And because they had no land of their own, they were totally dependent, homeless, restless, and fruitless. And so today, we're looking at John 5, where we see Jesus heal a man who has likewise been totally dependent for 38 years. And the implication here is that upon healing this man, Jesus is not only healing a paraplegic, he's bringing his people out of their wandering in the wilderness and into the promised land where they can finally dwell with their God, rest, and be fruitful. Before we get to John 5, I want to take us back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We're going to get to see where rest really began. When God created the heavens and the earth, he took six days to fill out the entirety of creation. But then on the seventh day, God's creation comes to completion, and so he rests from his work. And this day was called the Sabbath. And because this day had no night like the other six days, it was in actuality one endless day where all of creation was invited into endless rest and dwelling with God. And Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, joined with God as essentially as a king and queen of this seventh-day Sabbath rest where they too lived and worked in God's garden temple, enjoying fruitfully fulfilling existence. There was fullness of life. There was fullness of blessing. There was fullness of rest with God in his house. But as the story goes, Adam and Eve were deceived and when they disobeyed God's command in the garden, sin entered the world. And when that happened, the Sabbath rest and the fruitfulness that they were enjoying was broken. It was lost. But God made a promise that he would one day make a way for his people to re-enter that Sabbath rest. He would dwell with them again. He would rebuild the temple that they had lost and rest in fruitfulness 
would be restored. And that plan to restore continued with God redeeming a nation named Israel, who were a people that he claimed and with whom he intended to dwell with in that Sabbath rest. In addition, that the nations of the world would be welcome into that rest as well. So again, that all of creation and that all of the people and that all of the nations would know rest and fruitfulness with God. But Israel was enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. And so the Lord called a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a a picture of God's rest and blessing. And Moses led them right up to the edge of the promised land. And then his successor, Joshua, took them all the way into the promised land. Now, it was here that conceivably that Israel would be able to thrive in God's presence. They'd be able to rest in peace. They'd be able to welcome the rest of the world to join with them. Work would no longer be toil. Rest would no longer be evasive. And God would be the hope, life, and light of the world. But even though their entrance into the promised land with Joshua was certainly fruitful, still because of sin... Because of disobedience, it was not a rest that lasted. Let's look at Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So again, what we see here is that the promised land of Joshua was again only a shadow of what God had in store. God had another day promised for rest for all people. And according to his promise in Genesis, it would be given by someone greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, a shepherd, a shepherd prophet, priest, who would usher people into one eternal day of rest that would never end. And so as we come to John 5, the people of Israel are still waiting on that promised day to come and be fulfilled. But this is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a fable that we're looking in on. All of humanity, all of creation still lives in a state of longing to enter a home that brings rest and fruitfulness. Every one of us in this room longing for that. Everyone in our world longing for that. All of creation longing for that. Where we can dwell in peace and live the way that we were always meant to live. So let's read from John 4, or John 5. Just a a small note on verse 4, which is footnoted in in the scriptures. It's not going to be on the slide. There are differing differing opinions on this verse because it did not appear in the early manuscripts, but I'm going to read it because I think it helps us understand verse 7 which is definitely in the early manuscripts, and the man's desire to get into the water. So let's read from John 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth, uh, sorry, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And there are multiple stories 
in the Old Testament that tell of people and sheep around pools of water. And most often, there are wells where water is drawn by shepherds to water the sheep. And here, Jesus has come to a pool, to a well, by a sheep gate. And around that well, surrounding that well, is a multitude of suffering sheep who are all in need of healing. Now, the assertion that the water had healing properties was most likely an urban legend. It was most likely a superstition. But that they believed that once the water was stirred, if you were the first one in, you were completely healed. But Jesus comes upon this man at Bethsaida, which means house of mercy, who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, we don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if he's 38 years old and he's been paralyzed his whole life. We don't know that if he was paralyzed at 20 and he's in his late 50s. But the important thing for us to see is that for 38 years, just like Israel's 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, that this man isn't just one man, but a representative of Israel languishing outside the promised land. Let's keep reading. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This seems like a very silly question. A man who has been coming every day, who has been brought every day, probably by his family, to come to this pool to be healed. And then he's asked, do you want to be healed? If we think of it as only a man, then it's a silly question. But if we think of this man representing Israel, then Jesus' question is not strange. Because now he isn't just asking one man, he's asking an entire nation. Israel, my people, do you want to be healed? Now Israel, the Jews, were God's chosen people, but they believed that they were the ones who were well, and that it was the rest of the world that was sick. Israel believed that they were God's favored people, and that anyone who was outside of Israel was sick, and that anyone who was actually physically sick even inside of Israel were not favored by God. But by asking this question, even though Israel does not believe that they are lame, blind, or paralyzed, Jesus is exposing Israel and saying, Israel, you are still wandering in the wilderness. You are still lost. You have not entered the land that I have for you. The rest I have for you and the living that I've always intended for you to be fruitful garden priests. I ask you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to come out of the wilderness? Now the paralytic knows that he's sick, but he believes that his healing will come from the water. And if he could get into it, he believes he'll finally have his rest. He'll finally be able to thrive in blessing. 
I think we're all tempted to believe that if we could enter certain waters, that it would make us well. It would lead to our thriving. What is it for you? What, what water are you hoping to get into that, will really, that you believe will really lead to thriving, to rest, to blessing? Is it success in work? Is it your competency at work? Is it, your, is it climbing some particular ladder? Is it promotion? Is it money? Is it, is it having enough money so that you don't have to worry anymore? Do you want to be beautiful in some way? Maybe beautiful in some way that just attracts the gaze or the admiration of other people or of one person in particular. Maybe it's the water of being wanted or esteemed or loved. For me, and I don't, I don't talk about this much, but I think about it a lot. Um, for me, it's, <laughs> I can believe that the water that I need to get into is really losing weight. If I could just be disciplined and organized enough to lose weight, then I could thrive. That would be true rest. And what is it for you? And Jesus is telling Israel here that they're sick and they can't trust superstitious waters to bring the thriving and rest and fruitfulness that they were made for. And Jesus comes to him. He comes to him, and he doesn't even get near the water. He doesn't even put him anywhere near the water. The words of Jesus, those words, those are the word that speaks and makes this man live. He gives him new life, resurrection life by his word. And Jesus is saying to him and to us, it's not the water that heals you. I'm the one who heals you. It's not the water that gives you rest. I give you rest. Let's keep reading. In John 5. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus has come and is welcoming all of Israel to come out of their 38 years of wandering. And he heals a man who's been sick for 38 years. This is a public healing. There are many witnesses. And it seems as though this would be a wonderful thing and that only wonderful things would come in response. But the problem is, as we see here, is that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath, remember, it began in Genesis as this never-ending day of shalom and fruitfulness with God. But the Jews had actually been trying to keep it holy by not allowing any work of any kind to be done. So it was considered illegal for anyone to work on this day. But in doing so, they had actually forgotten what the Sabbath 
was meant for. And Isaiah 58 is going to help us understand what the Sabbath was meant to accomplish. So let's turn there and read Isaiah 58. Behold, in the day of your fast, in the day of your Sabbath, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In the book of Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament, the Sabbath commandment was based upon Israel's redemption from Egypt, on their rescue from Egypt, in which the children of Israel were released from bondage to the oppression of Pharaoh. So the Sabbath, as we can see here, was always meant to commemorate the release of the oppressed. Israel wasn't supposed to be ceasing from all work and doing nothing. They were to welcome others into the rest that God was providing for them. They were to share food with those who were hungry. They were to bring those who had no homes into their home. They were to bless those that they worked with and those that worked for them. The Sabbath was about God's people continuing to build God's kingdom on earth by extending the same rest and blessing that they were enjoying to those around them so that all people would come and live with God and enjoy the rest that he gives. And what this highlights is that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they were actually the real Sabbath breakers since they were opposing Sabbath healing and release. In fact, this man, all of these invalids, all of the, all of the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed that surrounded Bethesda were barred from entering the temple of worship. They were barred by these Jews on the day that they should have been extending rest and, rest and blessing to those who were languishing. They were barring the doors. So what Jesus is doing for one son of Israel, he's actually doing for an entire nation. He's fulfilling the very Sabbath that God has called for to release the oppressed, to bless the infirmed, to welcome into a home those who have no home, to clothe those who are naked. He's leading Israel back into God's presence and rest. Let's keep reading. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> it's great to see you. Don't sin, or it'll go worse for you. <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs> I don't know if he said that. It's not written here. He didn't say, Catch you later. 
So the man gets up and he carries his bed into the temple on the Sabbath. The man who carries this instrument of rest into the house of rest on the day of rest. Jesus is reunited with this healed son of Israel in the place where God dwells. Do you see what's happening? This is astounding. It's a picture of Israel in the wilderness being healed, coming out of the wilderness and into the promised land, the house of God, God's presence. This is a son who has been welcomed into the dwelling place of God the Father through the healing of the Son. This new creation through Christ brings in the outcast. It brings in the blind. It brings in the needy. It brings in the addict. The work of the Sabbath. The work of extending rest and blessing to the world. And while Jesus is glad to see him, In the Father's house, he does give him a warning. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And I want us to remember, he's still speaking to Israel. We haven't switched from that. He's not just speaking to one man. He's speaking to a nation. So to Israel, do you want to be healed? Good. You're here and you're well. Don't sin. Sin no more so that it may not go worse for you. This is about obedience. Jesus says, Israel, obey my word and stay in this land. Obey my word and stay in this house, in this temple. Continue to enjoy Sabbath rest. Obey my word and continue to work fruitfully in this house. Why? because there are worse things than being paralyzed. What could, be wor- what could be worse? I wanna say that when we read this, this is going to be a little difficult, but I think we need to let the Bible tell us something and warn us here. Because this, this warning is not just for Israel, it's for us. So what could be worse? Well, in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes to assess all the different churches. And when he comes to the church at Ephesus, he sees that they're theologically strong. Their doctrine is really good. They know false teaching when they hear it. They know heresy when they hear it. They know false teachers when they speak. But he says, essentially, they know how to hate what is evil, but they have forgotten to love what is lovely. They had forgotten their love for Jesus, and they had stopped repenting of their sin. And Jesus threatens to, in his words, remove the lampstand, which was the, essentially the physical, like wasn't the physical, but it was a representation of the presence of God because God is light. And it would have meant that the church of Ephesus would cease to be a city on a hill that it would be plunged into spiritual darkness and presumably it would have grieved the spirit to the point of the spirit's departure. The reason that sin is so destructive is because disobedience breaks Sabbath. 
It breaks our rest. It breaks our fruitfulness as a church and as a people. I think what this, definitely at least one thing that this says is that the worst possible thing would be for a church to gather and for God to be absent. In other words, sojourn, and this is for us, sojourn, we should not take the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst for granted. We should repent and live holy, obedient lives, giving rest and healing to our neighbors, those who are far from God. Again, this is not just a warning for Israel. This is a warning for God's people. When we're healed by Christ and welcomed into the Father's house, we enter the church. This house is the body of Christ, where we're learning what it means to rest in this rest that Jesus provides and to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom, fruitful in Sabbath work, welcoming the sick and the needy, learning to love Jesus. And so, living as the people of God and learning what Sabbath life is about means that we must live in the church and as the church, learning what it means to obey God's word together so that we can stay in the land. Let's keep reading. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The rabbis taught that the only one who was lawfully allowed to work on the Sabbath without sinning was God. So when Jesus claims God the Father as his Father, he is validating the lawfulness of his own work on the Sabbath. The Father and the Son are still doing the work that began in the garden on that eternal seventh day, and they haven't stopped working. But even more than that, Jesus is claiming to be the true place of rest for all people, for all creation, because through his redemptive work on the earth, the cross, and through his resurrection, he has become Lord of the Sabbath. When he was accused, falsely, arrested, enslaved, and crucified, he was enduring all of the oppression that our sin deserved but he welcomed that oppression so that he could be the one who releases from oppression every man, woman, and child that call upon him and believe in his name. He brings the deep rest and salvation that the Sabbath only pointed to. Moses was the great shepherd of Israel. Joshua led Israel into the promised land, but Jesus is the greater Moses and the greater Joshua. He leads his people into the promised land by his own life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And Jesus comes to bring new life, a new world, a new creation. And he's giving a true form of rest and bringing gifts to the people on the Sabbath. 
Every Sunday when we gather here, this is, this is a reminder that we have been released from our oppression. That through Christ we have been brought out of the wilderness and put into the presence of God where we can rest, where we can thrive and live the way we're always meant to live. And every Sunday we get to relive our exodus and entrance into the promised land. And so as the church, we get to invite the rest of the world into that Sabbath rest as well. So let's be about Sabbath work, kingdom work. When we invite our neighbors over for dinner, it's not just an event, but we're building relationships and bringing rest to people who don't have rest. When we gather together monthly to pray, and as we show grace and love to one another in our gospel communities, our neighborhood parishes, we share the gospel with others, what we're doing in that is we're bringing healing. We're bringing words of rest. We're bringing service that heals, words that heal. When we care for coworkers or show hospitality to our neighbors or provide care or relief to the poor, we again are bringing rest. We're working to release one another from oppression, and that is kingdom building. Sabbath work and trusting God to do all that he promised in us and through us. And one day when Jesus returns and the new heavens and the new earth descend, that endless day of Sabbath will be established again forever. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word, which shows us that Jesus is the true Lord of the Sabbath. Lord, that in Jesus, true rest can be found, can be known. It's not in water, Lord, it's not in superstitious water, but it is in you, Jesus. And so we ask you, would you make us a community? Lord, that as we, as we grow theologically, that we, would, Lord, that we would continue to repent, that we would continue to love Jesus, Lord, that we would continue to offer rest to others out of obedience to your word. Make us a church, Lord, that rests in your word, rests in not only the knowledge of your word, but the obedience to it. And Lord, yeah, may your kingdom come in all of the Sabbath work that we do. Draw people to yourself and may more and more enter your Sabbath rest, we pray. We ask it all in your name. Amen.